Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Conan Unknown. This one, what happened to D.B. Cooper? This is like one of the more famous mysteries. I quite like these modern ones. Lately, we've been doing a lot of like ancient ones. I just recorded a video about... um. Oh my god, I literally just recorded it. Uh, El Dorado, which I don't know if that's come out yet, because it's just, it's, that isn't always how these work. But, I don't know, I was kind of, and then before that I did another one on something, and I'm like, let's jump into the modern world. That's nice. 20th century. D.B. Cooper, let's go. Thank you, Kevin, for writing this, by the way. The format of the show, if you're new here. I've never read the script that I have in front of me from Kevin, and uh, we're going to read it and explore it together. It'll be fun. Thanks for being here. <laughs> When people think of comic books, they generally think of superheroes running around in brightly colored costumes, possibly while wearing their underwear over their pants. However, comics have served as inspiration for all sorts of movies and TV shows that people don't necessarily tend to associate with the medium, from shows like Eye Zombie and Human Target to movies like Road to Perdition and the grossly underappreciated Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. Stories are ripped from the pages of comics have entertained people for decades. I've got a little personal story here. I'm a huge fan, or I was. I mean, it's been 20 years since it's been on the air. Do you guys know Smallville? It's like, most people know Smallville. It's like Superman the early years, right? I love that show. At some point, I was talking to my wife, who I definitely, I, I didn't know like 20 years ago. And I was like, yeah, no, Smallville's a great show. And she's like, yeah, I love Smallville. And however we, we were talking about it, she didn't realize that it was to do, I think she hadn't seen like the later seasons where it becomes a bit more obvious, but she's like so out of touch with comic books <laughs> that she didn't know. She was like, yeah, it's just about a boy called Clark Kent. She didn't know that that is who Superman was. <laughs> she's just liking Smallville as a, just a random TV show. And I'm like, look, I'm no like, like comic book nerd, but I knew that. <laughs> I definitely knew that. The comics have provided inspiration for more than just light-hearted entertainment. When a 2,000-ton cargo ship sank in Kuwait City's harbor, which was coincidentally also the source of their drinking water, salvage teams had to act quickly. What are we talking about suddenly? The ship had been carrying 6,000 live sheep whose now rotting carcasses threatened to poison the water supply. An international call went out for help across the globe, and help would come from a Danish engineer and inventor, Carl Croyer. What are we talking about, Kevin? Have we suddenly just jumped into a random story about a ship sinking in Kuwait? <laughs> okay. Carl realized he had read about a similar situation in a 1949 comic book by Scrooge McDuck creator Carl Banks. In the story, Donald Duck and his nephews realized that they could raise a sunken yacht by filling it with ping-pong balls, and that's exactly what Carl did. The operation was a success. And it was even recreated by the Mythbusters, who were able to raise the sunken ship using less than half the number of ping pong balls that they expected. Is that true? That's incredible. And where are you getting enough ping pong balls from? That's wild. Also, why did the Mythbusters need to test this? It was in 1949, and it clearly happened. It was an incredible example of out-of-the-box thinking. But as cool as it may be that the ping pong ball plan actually worked, there is an even less likely story that may have gotten its inspiration from comic books. It's the story of one of the FBI's oldest unsolved crimes, America's only successful skyjacking, and of one very confused reporter. Okay, I didn't know that this was... I know the D.B. Cooper case, because like any good YouTuber. I've made videos about it. <laughs> I think I made one about D.B. Cooper on my biographics channel where we talk about, you know, famous people, even though we don't even know who D.B. Cooper was. Probably made a video about it elsewhere. Like, I'm familiar with the story. I had no idea it was based on comics. Let's go. The hijacking. 
was the night before Thanksgiving, 1971, a relatively nondescript middle-aged man walked into Portland International Airport and purchased a one-way ticket to Seattle for $20 via Northwest Orient Airlines. He paid in cash and he gave the name Dan Cooper for the ticket. It was three decades before 9-11, so the employees weren't going to waste their time doing something silly like check the man's ID to see if that was actually his name. Needless to say, they also weren't going to bother to actually search his belongings. I feel like getting on a plane back in the day must have been just like getting on a bus. You just walk up, they're like, yeah, yeah, plane's here, come on everyone, get on. It's like, okay. No security, no ID check, no nothing. I don't remember a time before you had to take your shoes off at the airport and take all the liquids out of your bag. I mean, I'm sure I do, but I was too young to like have to be handling this myself. I was 13 on 9-11 so it's like yeah no it's before my time despite being the busiest travel day of the year the flight was only about a third full this is probably because it was only a 30 minute flight which once you account for all the time at the airport is barely faster than the three hour drive between the two cities now i feel that that's true these days kevin but back in the day if you could just roll up to the airport and get on the plane lately <laughs> i used to always arrive at the airport with plenty of time and now you know uh, i'm definitely a bit close cut things a bit closer because they're always like make sure you arrive like two hours before and i'm like yeah yeah but you're not really gonna close that thing until like half an hour before and yeah i'm like i always just you know like to push it a little bit unless i'm traveling with my family then it's like you never know what happens so let's just shut up early and then you can just go use one of those airport lounges or whatever and chill out for a little while which is quite nice have some free food <laughs> the plane took off on schedule at 12:50 p.m for what should have been a short flight with cooper occupying seat 18e in the very back row of the plane. Once the plane was in the air, Cooper lit up a cigarette and ordered a bourbon whiskey from the stewardess. He handed her a $20 bill for the $2 drink and told her to keep the change. Holy sh player. Cooper was very polite and courteous the entire time, but shortly after his first drink, he handed a note to the flight attendant, Flora Schaffner. Also, what half-hour flight has drink service? Surely that's just up at altitude and then down. Is anyone even taking their seatbelts off? The 23-year-old flight attendant was used to single businessmen giving their phone number, so she tossed the note into her purse without looking at it. Cooper then leaned into her and said, Miss, you had better look at that note. I have a bomb. The note said that he had a bomb and wanted her to sit next to him. I like to think this goes without saying, but for all of you single guys out there, this is not an appropriate way to request a first date. Good news, Kevin. That's not what he's doing. Florence sat down and asked to See it. So Cooper popped open his briefcase and let her peek inside. She saw eight red cylinders, which she assumed to be dynamite. The dynamite was wrapped in wires and connected to a large battery. That's right, there was once a time when you could carry a Looney Tunes star bomb into an airport and onboard a plane without any hassle. Once Florence was thoroughly terrified for her life, she wrote down Cooper's list of demands. He wanted $200,000 in US currency, roughly $1.4 million today, along with two primary parachutes and two reserve parachutes. Dude, that is a overkill much as a side note has anyone else ever wondered why people always feel the need to specifically request u.s currency in their ransom requests was there a big trend in the early 1900s where criminals would escape with their bags of ransom money only to open them up and see two hundred thousand dollars worth of chilean pesos with a note that said gotcha on top of it some people believe that specifying u.s currency points to cooper being canadian that does make sense that he would oh because it'd have an american accent all that sorry sorry canadians he'd have a north american accent yeah i, I struggle to tell the difference between canadians and like non a Canadians and Americans like especially Americans from like the the north that does sound like suspicious doesn't it because you wouldn't say that like I'd say American dollars because I'm not American but an American would just be like dollars 
Like Brazil nuts in Brazil. No one says Brazil nuts, they say nuts. Or whatever they, the Portuguese word for nuts is. Anyway, Florence went to the cockpit to relay the demands to the pilots. The captain contacted air traffic control, who alerted local and federal authorities. Even though every movie and television show ever has insisted that the U.S. doesn't negotiate with terrorists, apparently they do, because they quickly got to work meeting Cooper's demands. Yeah, that, that line about non-negotiating with terrorists is like, bro. <laughs> negotiating with terrorists is like everyday life. Once they land, not for regular people, I mean like in the military or whatever, or in government. Once they landed, he wanted the plane to be refueled before anyone was allowed to leave at this point none of the other 35 passengers on the plane had any idea what was going on. The 30-minute flight was going on two hours, but as far as anyone else knew, they were just flying in a holding pattern before landing due to a minor technical malfunction, a phrase that could become synonymous in the public consciousness with, there is a bomb on this plane for decades to come. That's a lot of fuel. Do they really carry that much extra fuel? 30-minute flight? Two hours? That seems heavy. But since it was the day before Thanksgiving, they may have all been too occupied with get preoccupied with getting drunk in preparation for having to deal with their god-awful families the next day to realize just how long it had been. Nah, people know. <laughs> people know. If you're on a half-hour flight, it doesn't matter how drunk you are. If you've been on there for two hours, you'll be like, guys, had... how long was this flight supposed to be? <laughs> After the plane was refueled, Cooper wanted the money to be delivered to him on the plane by Tina. However, the money was not to be delivered until the shade on every window was closed. That way, a sniper couldn't see who the money was being delivered to on a plane full of people and try to make him out. Upon delivery of the money, he would let everybody off the plane and Tina could fetch him the four parachutes. As the people on the grounds got prepared, meeting his demands, Cooper and Tina got to know each other better. He would look out the window and showed a familiarity with the area, indicating cities on the ground from the aerial view. He also mentioned the McCord Air Force Base was only 20 minutes drive from Seattle to Coma Airport. Some people took this to mean that he was former military, but I disagree that it's indicative of such. I'm sure every civilian north of Boston can tell you where Hanson Air Force Base is. These locations are not really secret. When Cooper was informed that they'd acquired the money as well as four military parachutes, he rejected the offer and instead demanded civilian parachutes. Tina said that the entire time they were in the air, Cooper didn't seem nervous at all. He was friendly and kind, a perfect gentleman. He ordered another bourbon and paid with the $20 bill, telling her to keep the change. Unfortunately for both Tina and Florence, it was against company policy to accept the tips he had offered them. Given the circumstances, I'd like to think the airline would have turned a blind eye to such impropriety. As they continued making small talk, he asked Tina where she was from. She said she was from Pennsylvania, but was originally from Minneapolis. Cooper responded by saying that Minnesota, the state where Minneapolis is located, was a very nice country. To some people, this is further evidence that he wasn't from America and possibly that English was his second language. To others, it was an obvious red herring. That seems a bit like, even I know, like country? It's like Minneapolis. Wait, is that a city? Look, either way, I don't know if it's a city or a state. Minneapolis in Minnesota. Like, if I know that they're not countries, and didn't didn't we say he sounded Canadian or he said this? If they're gonna know if he's if English isn't his first language because he's gonna speak with an accent. He's gonna, gonna sound like me, an American, Australian, Canadian, New Zealand, one of those you know South African, like one of these accents. He'll be like English first language, or he's gonna sound like I don't know Spanish. Or whatever, and even though he's slightly Spanish sounding, isn't he? They had a conversation for hours. <laughs> when Tina asked where he was from, he got upset and refused to answer. At some point during the flight, she asked him why he had decided to hijack a Northwest Airlines plane. His response was simply, It's not because I have a grudge against your airlines, it's just because I have a grudge. That also sounds like someone who's not American. Because, uh, what was it called? Northwest Airlines? Sounds like an American airline, right? Flying in America. It's not because I have a grudge against your airlines. Sounds like your, as in American airlines, right? 
right? That's a pretty weird answer, and it makes me wonder why these people were paying for his grudge against someone else. Even if it was some vague grudge against the US government, whom he probably expected to pay the ransom, the airline was actually the one that was on the hook for the money. They would eventually receive $180,000 of it back from their insurance company, but only after a judge ordered the insurance company to pay up. Jesus, it sucks when you have to take your insurance company to court to get them to pay a legitimate claim, which hijacking, I imagine, is something covered in airline insurance policies. A little before 5.30 p.m., the plane had finally landed, the money was delivered, and the passengers were released. Most, if not all of them, still had no idea why they'd really been held in the air for so long or what was going on in the back of the plane. As Cooper counted the money, Tina attempted to ease the tension by asking if she could have some of it too. That's a pretty ballsy move, even as a joke, but he handed her a stack of money without a second thought. Unfortunately, she gave it back, citing the same anti-tipping policy that hadn't let her keep the extra $18 for the bourbon. She also probably didn't want the FBI to see the money and view her as an accomplice. Speaking of the FBI, it took trips to several different banks in the Seattle area, but the agents were able to assemble 10,000 unmarked, non-sequential $20 bills. Wait, that sounds like a bad idea. Don't they want it to be like sequential and marked? Isn't that the whole game? Non-sequential unmarked bills is the sort of thing I'd ask for if I was asking for a ransom. <laughs> That might seem like every criminal's dream, right? A large ransom in unmarked, non-sequential bills in an era before they could hide a GPS tracking device inside the bag of money. Surely, they'd have no way of ever tracking that money down again. That would be true if it wasn't for the fact that despite apparently paying ransoms, the FBI generally doesn't f**k around. Before delivering the money to Cooper, they took pictures of every single bill that was included in the ransom, so they would have a record of all the serial numbers. This would allow them to track where they were spent, assuming the money ever made it into a bank. Wait, when it goes into a bank, like back in the day, are they really writing down or scanning all those serial numbers and entering them into some sort of crazy database? I can imagine them doing that now because computer technology is insane. But like back in the day, surely not. At this point, the plane was now empty except for the three flight crew and the flight attendants. Only Tina was allowed to exit or enter the plane and she had to go and retrieve the four parachutes for Cooper. Florence asked if she could get her purse, which was stored behind him, and he agreed. She then asked if she and the third flight attendant can leave, to which he replied, Whatever you girls like. Let this be a lesson to any would-be criminals out there. If you want to go down in history as a folk hero instead of a dangerous criminal, you need to be super chill about your crimes. If your hostages ask for some of the ransom money or for their freedom, just let them have it. Either you're going to get away with the crime or you're not, so it doesn't cost you anything to be kind. But also, please don't commit crimes. Yeah, this is it. If you're going to be a, just be a good criminal like there's no need to hurt people i mean maybe there is if you're like robbing a bank or some shit <laughs> but generally like yeah this is this is good advice don't don't be a dick it applies to non-crime life as well all that was left was to wait for the plane to finish refueling the refueling was delayed and required three fuel trucks which annoyed cooper he was also annoyed that the ransom money was delivered to him in a cloth bag instead of the knapsack that he had requested he pulled out a pocket knife because you could carry those on planes back in the day and tried to fashion a bag out of one of the spare parachutes he tied the bag up with the parachute cords and then tied it to his waist the fbi noted that tina's account of what had happened here was pretty vague but seeing as cooper had no idea what the fuck he was doing i'm not sure how tina was expected to the escape it wouldn't take long before Cooper's patience with the refueling would run out. He commented that it was taking far longer than it should have, so he outlined his flight plan to the crew. They were going to fly into Mexico, but with some rather unusual specifications. The plane was to fly as slow as it possibly could without stalling, 115 miles per hour. The landing gear would remain down. It would only climb to an altitude of 10,000 feet, the wing flaps would be pointed down at a 15-degree angle, and the cabin was to remain unpressurized. Right, so this is how he can make his jump. These were bizarre and unsafe requests, but the pilot agreed. However, he did say that under those 
those conditions, the plane could only go about a thousand miles, so they'd need to refuel again before Cooper's final destination of Mexico City. They agreed on Reno Tahoe International Airport as the refueling destination, and then it was time to take off again. The plane took off at around 7.40 p.m., over two hours after it landed. That's two hours that Cooper sat on the nearly empty plane without any attempt by the FBI to do anything about it. Sure, he had a bomb and a few hostages left, but I say, roll them bones, and that is why I'm not a hostage negotiator. Yeah, no, what are you doing? Like, just let him go. Like, hope to catch him later, and if you don't catch him, too bad. But it's not worth lives. It's just money. It's just money that's going to be paid for an, by an insurance company that I'm sure gets played penny of money by the airlines. Uh, and obviously don't want to encourage this stuff, but it's better than people dying. And as we've already established, negotiating with terrorists is a thing. But like I said, the FBI doesn't mess around. They may have let Cooper get this far, but there were two F-106 fighter jets and Lockheed T-33 trainer following the hijack 727 just far enough back to be out of Cooper's view. Once they were in the air, he asked Tina to open the door and lower the aft staircase. Unsurprisingly, she was not a fan of this idea, as she was terrified of being sucked out of the plane. However, the fact that Cooper even knew about this staircase is fairly important. It was highly classified knowledge at this time, but the 727 had a rear door and staircase with controls in the back of the plane that could not be overridden by the cockpit. These commercial airliners had actually been used by the military to drop soldiers behind enemy lines in Vietnam, so many speculate that Cooper was either ex-military or an ex-Boeing employee since he knew about this feature. Or he'd talk to anyone who knew about this feature. Like, a lot of people are going to know about it, and it's been... And was this happening? It's been year. I mean, it must have been around for years, so the chances of the secret getting out are fairly fairly high. Tina called the flight crew with her concerns about opening the door, and they suggested that she come to the cockpit and get an emergency rope so that she could tie herself to one of the seats before opening the door. Cooper wasn't going to let her leave and then come back, so she asked if she could use some of the cord from the cut-up parachute to tie herself to a chair. He didn't have time for any of that malarkey, so he told her that he would do it himself. He instructed her instead to go to the cockpit, closing the curtain between coach and first class behind her as she went. Tina begged him to take the bomb with him, and he said he would either disarm it or take it with him. Only four or five minutes after the plane had taken off and reached out, Tina was already in the cockpit, where she would remain. For the rest of the flight. At about 8 p.m., a warning light in the cockpit went off, indicating that the rear staircase had been deployed. They asked over the intercom if he needed assistance, and Cooper replied with the final message that anyone would ever hear him say, no. The crew's ears all popped as the cabin door was flung open, lowering the pressure in the aircraft. They had no idea if Cooper was on the plane or if he had really jumped. About three hours later, when they approached Reno, Tina hopped on the intercom to tell him that they needed the stairs retracted and the door closed so that they could safely land for refueling. She kept calling out over the intercom, but there was no reply. The crew finally landed the plane with the door open and the staircase deployed. When they landed, they went to search the cabin, but Cooper, the money, and the bomb were all gone. One particularly fun part of this case is we'll never know whether or not Cooper actually had a bomb or just something that would look like a bomb at a glance. Like the briefcase with the alleged bomb inside, almost everything that Cooper brought with him went out the plane with him. All that was left behind were the spare parachutes that he didn't use and his black clip-on tie and tie clip. That and lots of fingerprints. There were 66 unidentified fingerprints found throughout the plane. It's unclear how many belonged to him, but seeing as they're still identified, it doesn't really matter. It's curious that Cooper would be meticulous enough to make sure that he got his handwritten note back from Florence, yet careless enough to leave his tie on one of the seats. In 2001, there was a partial DNA profile pulled from his tie. However, this is mostly meaningless for multiple reasons. The first is that because it's only a partial profile. It's not terribly useful in terms of making a conclusive match. Even more important is the fact that we don't actually 
actually know whose DNA is on the tie. DNA evidence wasn't a thing in 1971, so God knows if somebody touched the thing at some point without gloves on and got their DNA all over it. Even if they hadn't, there's still far too many ways the DNA could belong to someone other than Cooper. Extensive testing of the tie also reveals some particles found on the tie in the 2010. These were particles of titanium, rare earth metals, and even three tiny particles of an alloy of titanium and antimony. This weakly suggests that Cooper was involved in metal or chemical manufacturing. One researcher found a patent for a titanium antimony alloy from 1957, an alloy that was only made at a single company. However, they didn't work with the material very long, so those particles would have had to gotten onto the tie that Cooper was for some reason wearing at a manufacturing plant and remained there for over a decade. It's possible, but the connection seems a bit tenuous. However, this angle would point more towards him having been ex-Boeing rather than ex-military. Yeah, it seems pretty, seems pretty good, seems pretty sensible conclusion to draw. Speaking of tenuous links, there's the name the man used to buy the plane ticket at the airport. One of the early suspects in the case was a man named D.B. Cooper. A television reporter got confused and used this suspect's name as the name of the hijacker. It is the name by which he gains notoriety, but as we previously mentioned, he actually purchased the ticket under the name Dan Cooper. The name has been linked to a French-language Belgium comic called Dan Cooper about a Canadian flying ace and also a rocket ship pilot. At least one cover of the comic features Dan skydiving. There's, uh, oh yeah, Kevin mentioned at the beginning of the comic book thing. thing. There's a hostage ransom, other very minor parallels. It has been suggested that Cooper not only stole the name, but the entire idea from the pages of his favorite comic, and that's definitely possible. Because the comic was never translated to English, this would further point to him being a Canadian, as the book was available there. Alternatively, it could mean that he was a military man who had been stationed abroad when he found the comic. The Canadian idea is loosely corroborated by his referring to Minnesota as a country, although I suspect an intelligent, well-spoken man such as Cooper would not have made such a mistake by accident. Yeah, it does seem like he did that on purpose. It's just a bit too much. Especially, I wish we knew what accent he was using. Like, the, the stewardess. What, what did she say? What he sounded like? I think it would be really fun if the comic book was actually his inspiration, but I'm less than convinced. A quick glance at the white pages shows there are 1,475 Dan Coopers in the United States. That's only the ones who are 18 years or older and whose phone numbers are listed, so there's probably more. Do people still list their phone numbers? <laughs> Doesn't everyone have mobile phones? And there's no there's no way I'd list that anywhere. <laughs> You'd be insane to. It's like, do you just like getting spam calls? Do you not get enough of them? Would you like more? Would you like people to be able to look you up and just give you a ring? <laughs> I went to school with a guy named Dan Cooper. If the hijacker had used the name Bruce Wayne or Fing Fang Foom, then I'd be a lot less skeptical about the correlation. If accurate, the fairly obscure nature of the book, at least in America, does narrow down the list of suspects quite a bit. But on the topic of him being a military man who was stationed abroad, there's debate as to how likely this is. At first, it was believed that he was probably an expert uh, with a parachute, likely ex-Air Force. This was later changed, with many in the FBI believing that he was just a goddamn idiot. To start, he refused the military parachute, instead wanting civilian ones, though Owen Tina handed him instructions on how to use them that she'd been provided with, Cooper said he didn't need them. There's also the matter of when he jumped. He jumped in the dark during freezing cold rain. Because of the altitude, the wind from freefall, and the rain, it should have felt like 69 degrees below zero. The parachute he used couldn't be steered, so he'd be crashing down randomly into the woods with no ability to guide his landing. He was also wearing only a suit, black trench coat, and pair of loafers. Wait. They make parachutes which you can't guide? Isn't that insane? What you, you, what if you crash into something? There's houses, there's power lines, there's trees, there's lakes. 
You just want to land softly on the grass? I've only been parachuting uh, skydiving once, but like the, the ability to control it is really important. Jumping under these conditions doesn't sound like a decision someone who knew what they were doing would make, but maybe he believed he was just that damn good and he could handle the death-defying stunt effortlessly. Despite my skepticism about both these points, the theory from the FBI's last lead investigator on the case is that Cooper was in fact an Air Force pilot that had been stationed in Europe where he was exposed to the Dan Cooper comics. Then, okay, yeah, and then it leads to the Minnesota thing. It's like, okay, great. It's just an intentional red herring, although it seems to be a bit of a dumb and obvious intentional red herring. The investigator's theory was also that Cooper didn't survive the fall and they just never found the body or the bomb or the money or the parachutes. It's a lot of sh to find, isn't it? Unfortunately, the FBI officially closed their investigation in 2016. After decades of searching, they declared that the Bureau had better things to do with their time than investigate the 45-year-old theft of not even that much money, relatively speaking. Yeah, I... <laughs> it's like, I think the biggest thing is not about the money, it's the fact that he hijacked a plane with a bomb. Maybe it was a real bomb or not, that's a pretty major crime. But no one died. It's not that much money. The FBI's got some real shit to get onto. They're after some big-time criminals, I'm sure. It's the FBI. It's what they do. Earlier, I mentioned that the flight crew was unaware whether or not Cooper was still on the plane. While this was true from their perspective at the time, the answer would later be pinpointed. At 8.13, the plane's tail section suddenly jerked upwards, causing the pilot to need to level out the plane. Later experiments were able to replicate the flight conditions that they were under at the time and push a 200-pound desk out of the rear door of the plane. It reproduced the tail jerk perfectly, though nothing seems to be said about where or on whom the desk fell. Jesus, he's throwing a desk out of a plane. By determining the exact time that Cooper would have jumped, calculating the flight path should have been able to identify where he would have landed. There was just one problem with that. GPS wasn't installed on planes until 1994, and the pilot was flying the plane manually rather than using autopilot. They actually needed to calculate the path rather than just be able to look at exact coordinates. Any tiny adjustment on one of a number of different variables would result in wildly different results. Not like a thousand miles different, but different enough that it resulted in an absolutely massive search area compared to what would be a pretty contained search in modern times. Later investigation and experiments would also show that this initial search uh, wasn't even close to where Cooper uh, would have jumped. Now, I mentioned that they never found a body or parachutes or the money, but that's only mostly true. One of the strangest things about this case is that the vast majority of the money has never been found. The serial numbers were sent to the likes of banks and casinos and eventually oh, were published publicly. One moron had the bright idea to print counterfeit bills with some of those serial numbers so they could try to sell a story to magazines, but it turns out the FBI doesn't have a hard time telling the difference between real and fake money. Yeah, isn't counterfeit money's never going to be good enough to like stand up to proper scrutiny by an expert, right? It's always just got to stand up to like someone in a shop or someone you're selling something to, right? There's, you can't make it good enough that it's completely foolproof. Otherwise, there'd be a huge problem. However, in 1980, a portion of the money was found. An eight-year-old boy was raking the sandy banks of the Columbia River so that he could build a campfire. In doing so, he uncovered 5,800 pounds that had been part of the ransom. The bills were in terrible shape thanks to being exposed to the elements for nearly a decade, but they were still in the rubber bands and stacked in the original order. This actually raised more questions than it answered. It may seem this was the evidence that Cooper died, but if so, where was his body and where was the rest of the money? The bills that were found included two stacks of $120 bills banded together and another stack of only 90. When he had offered money to Tina, he just handed her one of the stacks rather than pulling some bills out, and he certainly hadn't stopped between the plane and the ground to spend any money. Why then were 10 bills missing 
from one of the piles. The wear on the money also indicated that it hadn't been deliberately buried, but rather it was deposited into the riverbank by the water itself. If that's the case, why would those three bundles have remained together instead of floating away randomly? Other than showing the previous estimations for where they were when Cooper jumped were wrong, this discovery did little to illuminate the truth. Oh, and there's just one other tiny bit of evidence, which is Cooper himself. It's not like he purchased the plane ticket and boarded the plane wearing a balaclava. That'd be more than a little bit conspicuous. <laughs> you might be walking on with a giant Looney Tunes bomb, but a balaclava, someone's going to be like, Uh, sir, <laughs> why are you wearing a balaclava? <laughs> Let me have a look at your bag. At one point during the flight, he did put on a pair of six shades, but people saw his face. Both flight attendants were required to sit next to him, so both got plenty of time to commit his face to memory. The only problem is that he was extremely generic looking. The FBI bulletin described him as a white male, mid 40s, 5'10 ish, 170 to 180 pounds, with an olive complexion and a Latin appearance. He was also described as having normal style hair, <laughs> because I guess in 1971 there was only one acceptable haircut for a man. He was said to speak intelligently and had no discernible accent, which in America normally means a person is from the Midwest. Well, there we go. Again, it is frequently brought up that Cooper may have been Canadian, this makes sense, because a Canadian can talk to an American about anything uh, without showing a sign of an accent, eh? <laughs> Yeah, I, it's a, to me as an outsider, it does sound so, so similar. The good news about the physical description was that the Aerods put together what they believed to be a highly accurate sketch based on all of the eyewitness testimony. The bad news is that because it was so horrifically bland, basing it solely on the appearance left room for a lot of suspects. And there were indeed a lot of suspects. In the over 50 years since the heist, there have been multiple people coming forward to accuse relatives of being Cooper as goddamn snitches. There have even been multiple deathbed confessions from people claiming they did it themselves. Then there are all the investigations, both from the FBI and amateur detectives, who have identified several potential candidates. And that just leaves two questions. Who was Dan D.B. Cooper, and where is he now? I'll answer that second question for you right now. He's dead. I don't know whether or not he survived the jump, but unless he looked absolutely terrible for his age, he was in his mid-40s in 1971. That would put him at about 96 years old today. If there's anything I learned from Queen Elizabeth, it's that people don't often live past 96. <laughs> Yeah, he's nice. He's probably dead. It is theoretically possible that he's still alive, but he was described as being a pretty intense chain smoker, so I do not like his odds. But who was he? It's quite a list of candidates. So let's take a look together and see who, if any, seems the most plausible. The suspects. The FBI investigated over a thousand suspects in this case, but we're only going to be looking at some of the more credible or famous ones. Oh my god, the FBI definitely spent more than 200 grand on this. His ransom was like $200,000, right? The FBI must have spent hundreds of millions on this shit. A thousand suspects over decades. They even threw a desk out of a plane. That's probably going to cost more than 200 grand. First, there's Ted Braden. Ted enlisted in the military at the age of 16 during World War II. He was one of the military's leading parachutists, and he even represented the army in international skydiving tournaments. Also, apparently international skydiving tournaments exist. Yeah, I bet they do. It's a sport. According to his military records, he made a 911 jumps during his military career. This made him a good early suspect, but in reality, it may disqualify him as a possibility. During Vietnam, Ted was the Special Forces Commando. His behavior there was uh, interesting, to say the least. He was described as always making shady deals to make money, as well as having a death wish. It was said that he would place himself in needlessly dangerous situations, but somehow always survived unharmed. In December 1966, Ted committed the capital offense of desertion, leaving his unit in Vietnam and making it all the way to the Congo to work as a mercenary for hire. Does capital offense mean, like, 
punishable by the death penalty? I mean, surely not. This is like the 20th century. They weren't punishing deserters with death. They would just put them in military prison. Right? <laughs> you can't murder people who run away from battle. <laughs> Their career change couldn't last long before he was captured by the CIA and brought back to the States to face court-martial. Despite desertion, in the time of war, carrying the death penalty. Holy shit! <laughs> That's so intense! Wow! I mean... I get it in the past, but nowadays, aren't you just like, well, you go to prison forever. You sign up for the military, you're all like, hoo-ah, let's go, military, ha. And then they're like, okay, you're going to Vietnam, and you're like, hoo-ah, let's go to Vietnam. And then you're like, oh my god, I hate killing people, and this is not for me. And you run away, and that's a death penalty offense? Like, aggravated murder? Holy shit, dudes. What the fuck? <laughs> Ted, however, was given an honorary discharge from military in 1967. Wait, what the fuck's going on? He did something that carries the death penalty, and he gets an honorary discharge? That makes no sense. His only punishment was that he wasn't allowed to re-enlist, to which he was probably like, Oh no! <laughs> the details of his life become a bit hazy following this. He seems to have led a life of crime, though a conviction wouldn't stick until 1980. What we do know for sure is that at the time of the hijacking, Ted was working as a truck driver close to where the hijacking took place. He mostly matched the description of Cooper, but was only 5 foot 8 according to his military records. Those measurements would have been taken barefoot, but it's unlikely that a pair of loafers was going to give him those extra couple of inches that Cooper was reported as having by witnesses. Aside from the height, however, Ted was a dead ringer for the police sketch of Cooper. He also had a grudge against the US government from blacklisting him from flying to other countries after he was arrested for his mercenary work. Wait, I thought the only punishment was that was he was allowed, not allowed to re-enlist. Re What's the problem if he wants to go abroad, work abroad as a mer mercenary in the Congo? It sounds fucking horrible, but isn't that his choice? It's even possible that he was exposed to Dan Cooper comics while in the Congo, a former Belgian colony with French as its national language. Though Ted had the skills, the classified knowledge, and the pension for crime required, he was likely too skilled, which we're going to address later. Given his propensity for money-making crimes, it also seems likely that he would have stolen the money without ever spending any of it. But there's no guarantee that the makeshift bag tied to Cooper's waist actually made it to the ground with him rather than being torn off by the high winds. Next, there's Jack Coffelt. Jack was a con man who told all sorts of crazy stories. The only reason he gained any credibility as a suspect was because he bore a resemblance to the sketches, was in Portland on the day of the hijacking, and had leg injuries immediately following the hijacking that were consistent with a skydive gone wrong. There's a lot of stuff pointed towards him then, isn't there? Jack began claiming that he was D.B. Cooper in 1972 in the hopes of selling his story to a movie company. His story was reviewed by the FBI, who decided it was inconsistent with the actual story based on details that had not been made public. But Jack never gave up hope. He kept trying to sell his story until the day he died in 1975, despite it being rejected by both Hollywood and news programs like 60 Minutes. Though he was absolutely full of shit, you've got to give it to him for dedication, persistence, and a failure to realize that if anyone actually did believe his story, that he would go to federal prison. Yeah, dude, what are you doing? You've got to wait for that the statute of limitations to run out before you start bragging about your crimes. Everyone knows that. And it, honestly, even then, you probably shouldn't. But this was before the Son of Sam laws, so maybe he felt the payoff would be worth it. I don't know what the Son of Sam laws are. That sounds interesting. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? 
a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Kenneth Christiansen was accused of being Cooper in 2003, nearly a decade after it already died. His brother, Lyle had watched a documentary on the case and became convinced that Kenneth was the famous skyjacker, but his evidence was flimsy at best. Lyle argued that his brother, who trained as a paratrooper in the military, though was never in active service as such, was a smoker and enjoyed bourbon whiskey. Well, that really narrows it down. That is pretty much all the evidence he had. Florence was shown a picture of Kenneth and said that he looked more like Cooper than any of the other suspects that she had shown, but she couldn't say it was conclusively him. Seeing as it was over 30 years later, it's hardly surprising. Despite the complete lack of physical evidence and pretty shaky circumstantial evidence, Lyle was able to hire a private investigator, Skip Porteous, who went on to write a book that claimed Kenneth was Cooper's real identity. It doesn't seem to have been a bestseller, but maybe it at least drove some business to Skip's agency, Sherlock Investigations. The year after the book came out, the History Channel show Brad Meltzer's Decoded did an episode featuring Kenneth as the prime suspect for Cooper. Unfortunately, this was the History Channel, so Decoded was just the ancient aliens conspiracy-style bullshit for modern-day mysteries. Between the book and subsequent TV episode, there are a lot of links drawn between Kenneth and Cooper that simply don't exist. For example, they claimed that the perpetually broke Kenneth mysteriously purchased a house with cash shortly after the hijacking. In reality, this was less of a mysterious cash purchase and more of a standard mortgage that Kenneth wouldn't finish paying off until 19 years later. Something that is public record. Even though there is a lot of evidence against Kenneth as Cooper, it remains a popular theory. Lynn Doyle Cooper, or LD Cooper, was presented as a suspect in 2011 by his niece, Maria. How credible this story is depends on how much you believe the eyewitness testimony of an eight-year-old girl. An eyewitness account she would not actually share until she was 48 years old. I don't even like regular eyewitness testimony. Eyewitness testimony of children after 40 years is not reliable at all. I am happy to discount it entirely. But we're going to go into it. According to Maria, her family was at her grandmother's house the week of Thanksgiving, 150 miles southeast of Portland. She said that Eldie and another uncle of hers were planning something very mischievous involving the use of expensive walkie-talkies. The next day, the plane was hijacked while her uncles claimed to be out hunting wild turkeys. When they finally came home, LD's shirt was bloodied, which he claimed was the result of a car accident. That's not very convincing, but Maria also mentioned that her uncle was obsessed with the comic book Dan Cooper to the point of having one of the issues hanging on his wall. She also claimed that her parents believed that LD was in fact the hijacker. Considering that this is a 40-year-old memory of an 8-year-old girl, it's hard to put too much weight on her testimony exactly. However, there is a vague whiff of credibility here. It makes sense that someone with the last name Cooper would learn there was a comic book called Dan Cooper and become obsessed with the character also does it does it like just because you learn someone like what's the guy there's a, there's a dude is in blade called whistler it's like i've never seen if i've seen blade it was so long ago i don't remember i was probably a kid but like just because a character shares our same name doesn't it's not like wow and also, Cooper is a super common name. If LD had any parachuting experience, it certainly wasn't at a level that would disqualify him from suspicion. I don't really find this witness compelling, but it is a high level of coincidence. LD had been a leather worker, so when the FBI investigated, they tried to pull prints off some of the leather items that he'd made, but they were not able to find any. They did do a DNA test and found that it didn't match the partial profile found on the tie, but as you said, there's no guarantee that what they even found was Cooper's DNA. William Gossett was a military man having served in both 
both the Korean and Vietnam Wars. He had both jump training and wilderness survival training, but he was not a paratrooper, so he may have been a novice as a skydiver. There's not much to link William with Cooper, other than the fact that he was completely obsessed with the case and that he admitted to having done it to his family, well, sort of. He once showed his son's a key, which he claimed to be to a safe deposit box in Vancouver, where the ransom money was stashed. Realistically, it was either a random key that he found or an old key that he no longer needed, and he just lied to his kids to seem cool. The FBI found that not only was there no evidence linking William to the case other than his own statements, they couldn't even definitively place him anywhere near Oregon or Washington at the time of the hijacking. Joe Lackett didn't become a suspect until decades later when the analysis of his tie found those tiny specks of rare metals. At the time of the hijacking, Joe was working in Nashville as a production supervisor at an electronics capacitor factory. As a supervisor, he may have been required to wear a tie to work and likely would have been exposed to the metals found on the tie. But what could a factory worker in the South have to do with a hijacking in the Pacific Northwest? For Joe, the theory is all about motive. He'd been a major in the U.S. Army in the Korean War, so he may have had parachuting experience. More importantly, his daughter was killed two months before the hijacking in a failed hostage negotiation. Joe and his wife would eventually sue the FBI for negligence over their daughter's death and win their lawsuit. However, this came well after the hijacking. When Cooper told Tina on the plane that he had a grudge, just not one against their airline, it is speculated the grudge was against the FBI for getting his daughter killed. This makes some amount of sense, especially as I suspect most people would assume that the FBI, or at least the US government, would be the ones responsible for the payment. I know I had, and I was really surprised to learn that the airline company were the ones stuck footing the bill. Well, their insurance company, ultimately. I, I guess, though, I did feel the same, that it was probably the government who went around and got all the money and put it together. But for Joe, it may not have ever been about the money. After all, none of the money was ever spent. If he held a grudge against the FBI for the death of his daughter, it could have been more about embarrassing them and showing how incompetent the FBI was, rather than about actually collecting the ransom. Yeah, but once you got the money, you'd be like, it wasn't about the money, but yeah, let's spend a little... Although, then I guess you'd be like, well, that's going to increase my chance of getting caught, was if you just throw it all away, then... Yeah. Yeah, much less chance. That'd be intense. The ransom money's just a red herring. Sheridan Peterson served in the Marine Corps in World War II and went on to work in Seattle as a technical editor for Boeing. He was an early suspect because he had experience as a smoke jumper, firefighters, the parachute into the woods as a first line of defense against wildfires. He was also known for his love of taking physical risks and bore quite a resemblance to the sketch of Cooper. Then again, based on the photos of all these suspects, I feel confident in saying that 100% of middle-aged white dudes in 1971 bore a resemblance to the sketch. Despite having been a firefighter, Sheraton loved to stoke the flames by teasing reporters, insinuating that he might actually have been Cooper. If you're constantly being accused of it, you're kind of just, and you know there's no evidence, that you could kind of just do this <laughs> just to mess with them. Once the FBI took a serious interest in him as a suspect, he changed his tune and insisted that he was in Nepal at the time of the hijacking. <laughs> the FBI kept knocking the like, guys, it was a joke. I just got sick of it. I'm really sorry. You could look into me. It's not me. Also, while his face looks a lot like the sketch, personally, I think he was far too balding in 1971. The FBI bulletin was extremely descript, indicating the length of his barely existent sideburns and the difference in hair color between those and his head of hair. There's no way someone could be so far along in the development of a horseshoe pattern baldness without it being mentioned in the official description. Dick Lepsey is another name that shows up in discussions a lot, so I figured I'd quickly 
dismissed the idea. Dick is one person that didn't really look like the sketch of Cooper, and he disappeared over two years before the hijacking even took place. He had stolen $2,000 from his work before his lunch break, then never came back. His car was found at an airport near Portland, and it's believed he fled to Mexico. It's among the more foolish of the theories, but it's popular enough that I know I'd get shit in the comments if at least I didn't mention it. Yeah, this is like the least likely one so far, and none of these are particularly likely. Richard McCoy was, wait for it, yet another military veteran. I don't think Richard was Cooper, but he definitely wanted to be. He was most famous performing one of the copycat hijackings several months after the Cooper heist. Despite performing the hijacking using a nearly identical method, there were a few key differences. Well, I feel like one of these is that we know about him, so he was probably caught. First, Cooper was cool as shit. He remained calm the entire time and was friendly and generous with the hostages. Richard was nervous, fidgety mess the entire time, even before he began to enact his plan. This would be true for all the copycats. He also left behind a handwritten ransom note, something the real Cooper had been smart enough to take with him. This, along with a magazine that Richard was reading on the plane, gave them plenty of fingerprint evidence. Still, he was able to collect a $500,000 ransom and skydive out of the plane over Utah. He was arrested two days later and sentenced to 45 years in jail. Yeah, don't hijack planes. It's a big jail time. Many were convinced that Richard was in fact Cooper, especially because he refused to either confirm or deny whether or not he was to the media. His family also claims that the tie and mother of Pearl clip that Cooper had left behind belonged to Richard. <laughs> bloody snitches snitching on him for something he didn't even do this is an unusual thing to claim because there is very credible evidence that richard had been in las vegas at the time of the hijacking was back with his family in utah the next day for thanksgiving dinner maybe they thought the vegas trip was a cover story or since he was going to be spending the next 45 years in jail anyway maybe richard's family thought that identifying him as cooper who was already regarded as a folk hero rather than a criminal uh, would give him some sort of cachet that would be beneficial while he was behind bars okay that kind of makes sense i kind of get it he's off to prison anyway for 45 years jesus of course richard wasn't going to spend the next 45 years in jail two years into his sentence he and some fellow inmates staged a breakout by driving a garbage truck through the main gate of the prison he was tracked down three months later and killed in a shootout with the fbi wow three months on the run's not bad people who escape from jail is usually very very quickly back to jail with you Three months isn't bad. The agent that killed him was quoted as saying, when I shot Richard McCoy, I shot D.B. Cooper at the same time. That's probably not true, but whatever makes him happy, I suppose. William Smith is the most recent suspect, rudely accused in 2018, shortly after he died and couldn't defend himself from such allegations. This one feels like a stretch, mainly because William lived about 3,000 miles away from the hijacking, okay? His photos, past and present, bear a striking resemblance to the sketch of Cooper, but I feel like I've said this about a dozen different people at this point. Yeah, he's just generic middle-aged white dude. He's like me, but with hair. Bearerize <laughs> that someone looks like a generic bald bearded YouTuber with glasses. Generic faced fact boy. William was a World War II veteran where he served in the US Navy. In the Navy, he underwent combat air training, so he likely had some parachute experience. He was heavily affected by the Penn Central Transportation Company bankruptcy of 1970, the largest bankruptcy in US history at that point. This is theorized to lead to some vague, nondescript grudge that would lead to the hijacking. William worked at a railroad company where it is believed that he could have been exposed to metals found on Cooper's dime. His high school yearbook also included a list of alumni that had died during World War II, and among them is Ira Daniel Cooper, who went by Dan Cooper. It's believed that this could have been the inspiration for the name used for the hijacking. It's the newest theory, and the FBI's official statement is that it would be inappropriate for them to comment on tips related to William. Wouldn't they not comment anyway because they closed the case in, like, it was a while ago, right? 2018, 2017, something like that? 2016? It was a while back. They closed it, so why would they comment? They'd be like, bro, 
We're not taking the tips anymore. The case is closed. We've got other shit to do. We're the FBI. We're busy. Uh, many people have interpreted this to mean that the tips are being thoroughly investigated, so the FBI can't comment and potentially damage the search. In reality, it's probably their polite way of saying we closed this case ages ago. Please fuck off. <laughs> exactly. The only real reason I even included William on this list is to highlight how obsessed people still are with this case, as well as the desire many people have to prove that they're brilliant and special enough to solve it all on their own. This was a heavily researched theory put forth in 2018, nearly 47 years after the hijacking, and even a surface-level reading of it doesn't make sense. William lived 3,000 miles away from the hijacking, had a wife and two daughters, and held the same job from 1945 until 1993. His career even put him in the Pennsylvania Railroaders Hall of Fame, yet another thing I'm astonished to learn actually exists. In short, he had no clear motive, plenty of reason not to risk his life doing something so foolish, and was almost certainly thousands of miles away when the hijacking took place. Finally, there was Dwayne Webber, proposed as a suspect by his widow Joe. Dwayne was yet another dead ringer for the Cooper sketch, and he matched the expected profile of the man the FBI was looking for. He was another World War II veteran, but he also had committed a string of crimes between 1945 and 1968, landing him in jail at least six times. In 1995, three days before he died, he turned to his wife of 17 years from his hospital bed and asked her to come over. He wanted her to lean in as close as possible, and then he whispered to her, I have a secret to tell you. I'm Dan Cooper. Armed with this new information, uh, there was only one possible course of action that Joe could take. Do absolutely nothing, because who the hell was Dan Cooper? It would be many months before someone finally explained that Dan Cooper was the name the famous hijacker D.B. Cooper had actually used. Suddenly, a lot of things in Joe's life started making sense. A minor connection to Cooper was that Dwayne also drank bourbon and chain-smoked rally cigarettes, but those are both pretty small connections. However, after Dwayne died, she found a hidden wallet with a fake ID under the name John Collins. She had also once seen an old Northwest Airlines ticket lying around, and when she asked about it, he refused to answer, and the ticket suddenly disappeared. One night, Joe witnessed Dwayne having a nightmare, and he began talking in his sleep about leaving fingerprints on a plane. He also had an old knee injury that he claimed was from jumping out of a plane, despite there being no evidence of such an incident occurring. Then there was the trip that the couple took in 1979 to the area where Cooper would have landed. Dwayne inexplicably threw a bag into the Tenor Bar River that he said was a bag of garbage. This was the same location where $5,800 would be found roughly a year later. Joe also found a book about Cooper in a local library that was full of Dwayne's handwriting in the margins. If this is true, if she's not spinning a tale, this is pretty compelling stuff. But she could just be making it up for whatever reason. There's a lot of solid circumstantial evidence with this one, and it's highly suspicious if nothing else. However, the FBI ruled Dwayne out as a suspect for two reasons. The first was that his fingerprints did not match any of the ones they found. It's theoretically possible that he didn't leave any fingerprints on the plane at all. Nearly everything he touched came out of the plane with him, and though there are no reports of him wiping down his prints, he could have easily done it one of the times that he sent Tina to the cockpit to retrieve the parachutes. I don't know if that's terribly likely, but it remains a possibility. Dwayne's sleep-talking was specifically about a fear that he left fingerprints on the back staircase, so it's possible he'd wiped them down on the plane, but was fearful that he'd not been as careful when making his final escape. The other reason the FBI ruled Dwayne out as a suspect was that he survived. They have remained convinced that Cooper could not have possibly survived the jump. I've gone back and forth of it myself a few times, but there's one thing that suggests it is highly possible for Cooper to have made it to the ground alive. The copycats. 
There were five copycat hijackings following Cooper's initial crime. We're not going to go into the details of all of them here because the script is already long enough, but they're important to mention for one specific reason. All five men survived their jumps. Yeah, why are the FBI so convinced he's dead? Like he's just jumping out of a plane. It was only at 10,000 feet. It's not like it, it's you're jumping out of a pressurized cockpit at 30,000. I mentioned that it was originally believed that Cooper was a heavily experienced skydiver and possibly a former military paratrooper, but that this was later revised. It was believed that no one with any amount of actual experience would attempt such a stupidly dangerous jump. Cooper didn't have gloves, jump boots, or a helmet, and he hadn't been asked to be given any of these safety items along with the parachutes. Furthermore, he chose the older of the primary parachutes he was given rather than the newer, technically superior one. The reserve parachutes were even more telling. The one he chose was a dummy used for classroom presentations only. The chute had been sewn shut, rendering it completely useless. Oh my! Why would you do that? <laughs> just in case, just leave it functional. This was something an experienced jumper would have had the foresight to check and immediately notice. However, Tina said that he put on the parachute effortlessly. It was like something he did every day. Skydiving instructor Earl Carsey, who survived the parachutes of the FBI, also claimed that it wouldn't take an experienced diver to survive, and someone with only six or seven jumps would have been fine. He did admit that jumping out at night without protective gear would make it more dangerous, but he indicated this would likely result in leg or ankle injuries. While while landing rather than actually being fatal. We also don't know if Cooper had any of the safety equipment with him or not. Along with his briefcase bomb, he had a large paper bag like you'd get at the grocery store. His contents weren't used as part of the hijacking, so no one ever saw inside it, since it left the plane with him. It's possible he had gloves, jump boots, and a helmet inside. That or it could have been other useful survival equipment. That seems extremely likely. He's not just bringing a big paper bag on there for fun. It's going to have some useful stuff in it. According to an eight-year-old girl, it may have contained an expensive walkie-talkie. We'll just never know. Even if he survived the jump, it was believed that Cooper wouldn't have made it through the entire ordeal. It was believed that he wasn't working with an accomplice, and he gave no specific flight path, just the destination. Furthermore, when the pilot said they would need to fly to Reno instead of straight to Mexico, they would have changed the plane's trajectory and thus where he would jump, something that he could not communicate to the ground. They felt this showed that he had absolutely no plan for after he landed on the ground, and that may be true. However, $200,000 cash can buy someone a lot of goodwill. If he could find his way to a road, I'm sure he would have been fine. Those 10 missing bills might even have been used to purchase safe passage somewhere, though it doesn't explain why the rest of the money was discarded. But back to the copycats. Like I said, all five men survived, not just their initial jumps, but survived long enough to be arrested. Most of these jumps were in similar conditions to what Cooper did, and combining all of them uh, was far more intense. One hijacker jumped over northern Colorado in the middle of winter, wearing nothing but slacks, a shirt, cowboy boots. Another made a nighttime jump into the Honduran jungle. Oh my god. <laughs> why? Just being dumped in the middle of the jungle with nothing. Finally, there was Martin McNally. Martin jumped at night with no protective gear and only using a reserve parachute. He didn't even know how to use it and had to be shown how to put it on. By this point, pilots were probably pretty sick of these assholes holding them hostage, so Martin's pilot wasn't too keen on playing ball. They were supposed to hold at as slow a speed as possible without stalling, similar to the 115 miles per hour when Cooper jumped. He instead sped the plane up to over 360 miles per hour. This made Martin's jump extremely dangerous, and the high speeds immediately tore the bag of money off of his body when he jumped. Despite this, Martin survived with nothing more than superficial scratches and bruises. <laughs> He's in prison for a long-ass time as well, isn't he? Based on the survival of the copycats, I'm more inclined to believe that Cooper was actually the one that got away, and not the one that died and was never found. Wrap up. 
There are a lot of questions surrounding this case. The most obvious one is whether or not Cooper even survived the jump. The FBI's official stance is that he did not. Agents have theorized that he succumbed to hypothermia and never even got to open his chute. Instead, he landed in the Columbia River and drowned. I'm less convinced of this. The copycats all seem to have had less of an idea what they were doing than Cooper did, and they survived potentially even more dangerous conditions. Besides, if he did drown in the river, wouldn't some evidence have been found? A bag of money, suitcases, body, something? Even though the early searches were in the wrong area, there have been a lot of people searching for a long time. It seems unlikely that he could have died from his jump without anything ever having been found besides a fraction of the ransom money. The next question is what was Cooper's real identity? What do you think, Simon? Do you like any of the suspects that have been presented? I mean, some were more likely than others, but there's definitely not enough there that makes someone jump out at me and be like, that's your man. Definitely not. I think it was probably someone else. Personally, I don't think any of them are terribly good fits. If I could take Joe Lackich's motive of wanting vengeance on the FBI for getting his daughter killed and give it to career criminal Dwayne Weber, who made the deathbed confession to his wife, I think we'd get a pretty good suspect. Unfortunately, I don't get to invent people for the sake of storytelling. Joe had by far the most reasonable motive beyond simple greed. I could be wrong, but I don't like greed as a motive for this because it's such a high-risk and high-profile stunt to pull. Cooper is described as being extremely intelligence. I'm sure he would have been able to calculate that he could steal or extort a lot more than $200,000 in much safer and more reliable fashion. Dwayne's criminal history and a lot of the suspicions make him sound like a believable candidate, but there's some big question marks there as well. Other than his criminal record from before the hijacking, most of the evidence comes directly from his widow. It's all either evidence she saw but is now gone, or things she says she witnessed but there's no way to prove. Yeah, and this is the thing, it could just be, as in many of these things, that we see on Decoding the Unknown, sometimes it's just someone telling a real good story. If he really did fill in the margins of a book about Cooper with his own notes, it's possible he was just obsessed with the case and decided to gaslight his wife into thinking that he was the famous criminal. A lot of people still point to Ted Braden as the most likely culprit. If this was a fiction story, he is the exact character that someone would want to fill the role. He seems almost too perfect. Except for one problem, the money was never spent. Ted was another career criminal, even while he was in the military, and he seemed to be entirely in it for the money. Given that the plane was flying at an appropriate speed for him to jump, and that he had 911 recorded jumps in the military, I find it utterly unbelievable that Ted would not have tied the bag to his waist in such a way that it was guaranteed to make it with him to the ground. Once that happened, I find it equally unbelievable that he wouldn't have spent it. I'm, I'm not sure I want to just say it's not spent. Like, okay, so it's not spent in america right it's american currency they've got the bills they're tracking the numbers but what's to say you just didn't take the bag and leave the country and spend it abroad because it's american currency you can spend that like wherever you want like or uh, convert it to local money and is your local money lender is your random shop on the other side of the world going to report those numbers back to the fbi no i'm not i, I would discount the not spending of the money i think if you've committed a crime like this you probably do want to leave the country with your fat stack of american bills thinking american bills are good pretty much everywhere and you they probably are i don't think we'll ever know specifically who cooper was but we can at least theorize what kind of person he was the case has been analyzed from every angle and there are two main psychological profiles for the culprit though there are variations the first idea is that cooper was a career criminal likely a psychopath with antisocial personality disorder he committed the crime entirely for the money and he was willing to jeopardize the lives of everyone on the plane to get what he wanted he had fallen onto hard times and the hijacking was an act of desperation due to his financial situation i don't think so if he was a sociopath he wouldn't have let people go he wouldn't have had such a concern for other people's safety he'd have just been like it's all me let's go i don't think that fits 
In this scenario, he was polite to the flight attendants because he was manipulative and thought it would help him get away with the crime. He was also most likely a loner by choice, which would make sense given the evidence indicates that Cooper did not have an accomplice and would be fending for himself when he got to the ground. Also, just in general, having accomplices for crimes is not a good idea. It's one extra mouth. The alternate theory is that Cooper was a thrill seeker who never expected to survive the jump. In this scenario, he was likely a skilled worker, someone that may have worked a manufacturing job with the rare metals found on his tie, and he wanted some excitement and to make a name for himself. It wasn't about the money, it was about committing a crime that would let him live in infamy forever. I think that is a much more likely profile. Maybe it's just more exciting and glamorous, which biases me towards it, but I think the first one's just a bit it's not quite on. This theory proposes that Cooper wasn't a loner, but he was now alone. He was someone that either had lost his wife or become estranged from his family for some reason and decided he wanted to go out with a bang. His politeness wasn't a form of manipulation, but was either his normal temperament or something done to aid with the air of mystique surrounding the crime. I'm somewhere in between these. I'm not sure which one I'm leaning towards more. I definitely don't think it was about the money, considering it was never spent. Hmm? Also, Ted Braden had been investigated by the FBI for stealing $250,000 as part of a trucking scam, yet he never faced charges from that investigation. I think a career criminal would know there are easier ways to steal money than hijacking a plane and ones with a much higher chance of success. So I think it might be more of a thrill-seeking endeavor. I definitely don't think Cooper intended to die. None of the evidence indicates that he thought he wouldn't survive the jump. If we knew what was in the paper bag or whether or not the bomb he had was actually real, I think it'd be a lot easier to come up with an accurate profile for him. Yeah, I don't think the bomb was real, and I think there was skydiving equipment or survival equipment in the bag. Because what else would there be in there? There's simply too little evidence. Too many possible motivations and countless millions of generic white dudes from the 1970s who matched the police sketch perfectly. Similar to the case of John Benet Ramsey, when there is virtually no evidence and every theory has glaring holes, it's really hard to pick a favorite theory. If there's anything we've learned today, specifically from the ridiculous speculation surrounding railroad worker William Smith, it's that you can make a case for it literally being anybody in their 40s in 1971. There's still enough interest in the case that you can pick any random dude, no matter how flimsy or full of lies your argument may be, and you can get your book of speculation published and subsequently featured on whatever tripe the History Channel is currently airing. Mainstream historians would argue that this is unethical and immoral, but ancient astronaut theorists believe that it doesn't matter what you say as long as you get paid. Yes, which is why the History Channel is not an academic thing. This has been an episode of Decoding the Unknown. Thank you so much for being here and watching, listening. If you're listening, why not leave a review of this podcast? Thank you so much. If you're watching, smash that like button. Make sure you're subscribed, and I'll see you next time. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.